I want to read to you from Psalm uh, 33 this morning, beginning in verse 10. The Bible says, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees the sons of men, and the place of his dwelling he looks. On all of the inhabitants of the earth, he fashions their hearts individually, he considers all of their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any of its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, and he is our help and our shield. For our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let the mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Amen. Father, we thank you today that as on this Sunday morning, we come into this church, first of all, our priority is to worship you. Our priority is to become awakened to your word and to your presence and to the work of the Spirit of God upon our lives and in our hearts. But also on this particular Sunday, we want to honor our great nation. Father, we want to lift up America this morning. Father, we need your help. We need your divine intervention in so many areas. And Father, I pray, let the work of God and the move of the Spirit of God begin in this sanctuary this morning. So Father, I pray today, I pray that among this crowd of people this morning, I pray may the touch of God be a, a amazingly real. I pray that needs are going to be met. I pray that hearts are going to truly be lifted up. And we got, want to thank you always in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you turn in your uh, Bibles to the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 15. This is a passage that I actually wrote on in our uh, July newsletter. I'm using some of those materials there for this message today. But 2 Chronicles chapter 15, I'm going to begin in verse 1 through 6. I'm going to read my text a little bit later on in, the, uh, in this message. <clears throat> July is a great month in our... Uh, in our calendar, and when I think of July, and I think I'm probably, uh, I probably echo the thoughts of many people here, when we think of July, we often think of parades and firecrackers and, and uh, picnics and family gatherings and a number of those things. It's also a reminder that in 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia. And at the end of that great meeting, 56 men signed what they called the Declaration of Independence. And that was signed on July 4, 1776. It was then forwarded to King George III, who probably would like to hang all 76 of those people that represented the 13 colonies of this fledgling country called America. And that was the birthday. 
The last sentence is especially noteworthy of that Declaration of Independence, and I want to read it to you. For it says this, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Those are powerful words that gave birth to this nation of America. Personally, we are now 242 years since that particular time, that defining moment. And sometimes I pause to wonder when we actually say those words in 2018. Would we say, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, would that make it through Congress? Would we dare say that we pledge to each other our lives and our fortunes and our sacred honor? This doesn't say anything about Republicans and Democrats. It says we pledge to each other, and we do so before God. <coughs> Sometimes I wonder if a day passes without hearing about somebody's rights, that somebody is supposed to provide for them, or, or my feelings were hurt over this or that or whatever it is. The Declaration of Independence speaks out, speaks about our, <coughs> excuse me, our inalienable, right, inalienable rights. <coughs> and clearly tells us they come from God. I want you to consider a few of the words that come from some of the signers of this tremendous document. John Dickinson defines inalienable rights in this way. He says, which God gave to you and no inferior power has the right to take away. And then he goes on and says this, we claim them from a high source from the King of Kings and the Lord of all the earth. They are not annexed to us by any parchments or seals. They are created in us by the decrees of providence, which establish the laws of our nation. <coughs> Would you get me that water, please? <coughs> Thank you. John Adams, who would eventually become the second president of the United States, says this, antecedent to all earthly government, rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws, rights deprived or derived from the great legislator of the universe. Alexander Hamilton <coughs> explained inalienable rights in this way. They are not to be rummaged from some old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured <clears throat> by a mortal power. I don't know if you know who Flory Evans is. I'm guessing that maybe no one might know who that would be. But this was a 14-year-old girl back in, in 1905. <clears throat> who was a young woman in a church service in England. I don't know how they arranged their services at that time, but she was invited to stand and share a testimony, and with that she stood <coughs> and with a loud voice 
she declared that God had forgiven her sins and that Jesus Christ had come to live in her life, in her heart in particular, and that she knew him personally as the Savior and the Lord of her life. And with that testimony, she, she spoke and said, everybody in this place needs to know Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life. And with that, amazingly, and by the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit, the people of that church collectively asked Christ to come and be the Savior and Lord of their life. And what that did, what that did, that sprung what we know and what we call today as the Welsh Revival in which an estimated more than 100,000 people came to Christ. And all because of a 14-year-old who had the temerity to stand in the service and declare her faith and allegiance to Christ and expectation of the Spirit of God to move upon that church. Does God still do that today? I say he does. Several years ago in a service, the power of the Holy Spirit was so prominent and so real. So, so it, it was supernatural. And I recall this as if it happened yesterday. In a church that was filled at least with this many people, and as, as the service came to a close, I began to pray. And I had my head bowed, standing behind a pulpit and praying, and I started hearing noise. I started hearing the rustling of people. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought it kind of strange. <clears throat> and as I began to close that prayer, I glanced up, I kind of took a peek, you know, and I saw the entire church turning around in their seat and beginning to cry and call out to God. And that went on for over a half an hour. And it was well near 1230 before they turned around and sat down, waiting in the presence of God. That was a work of the Spirit. God still does what God does and only he can do. What is desperately needed today is a genuine Holy Spirit-initiated revival where God enters into what I call the national fray and then turn this nation around. I believe there's only two options for us, which is uh, two options for us. Option number one is the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. And that's good news for believers and followers of Christ. Number two, is an invasion by the Spirit of God to again present Jesus Christ to all of humanity and with the desire to change the entire trajectory of this nation. The whole point of revival, listen to me, is to re-engage God into the life of God's people. That is revival. It is not running the aisles, is not shaking around or any of that stuff. That might be a spinoff of revival, <clears throat> but it is to re-engage God into our lives. We have all heard from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, 
If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. God is speaking to none other than his own people. He's, <coughs> today he speaks to the church. Revival doesn't begin over here in the courthouse in Pocahontas or in, or in the legislative chambers in Washington. It begins here in the church. It begins right here. It doesn't start anywhere else. It can't start anywhere else. Because the things of the Spirit are only received by people who are of the Spirit. The natural man does not receive the things that are of the Spirit. He can't. It begins here in this church. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you something else. It doesn't only begin in the church. It begins right here. It begins here at these altars. It begins with me. It begins with you. It begins with us pouring out our hearts before God and, <clears throat> and asking God for his restoration and his work in our lives to rid our lives of pettiness, to rid our lives of sin, to rid our lives of these things that, that we accumulate, that, that we seem to attract because of our fleshly nature. The problem with 2 Chronicles 7.14 is right at the beginning. If my people would humble themselves. That's problem number one. Problem number two, and pray. Well, listen, Pastor Paul. <clears throat> when you straighten out, then I'll straighten out. And that's just plain stupid. <laughs> do, you, do you get the point? Okay. Good. Folks, when my alarm clock goes off at uh, 5.45 in the morning, I have two choices. What are my choices? Choice number one, get up. <laughs> choice number two is, choice number two is stay in bed and forget it. I think God is, I think God has set an alarm clock in America and it's going off and we have a choice to make. Am I going to do something about it or am I just going to roll over and say, let somebody else deal with it. Let's you know, don't interrupt my comfort. Don't interrupt my, uh, my well-being. I've got my little space here, and it's really cool, and I like it, and I'm not getting out of it. Don't bother me. The text I quote, and I'm going to read my text now from Second Chronicles chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. And he went out to meet Asa, and said to me, said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel has been without a true God, and without a teaching priest, and without the law. 
But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by him. God isn't playing hide and seek today, folks. He's right out there in plain sight, open sight, in the open field, and all you have to do is turn to him, seek him, and you'll find him. There isn't a person in this room that, <clears throat> that cannot seek God and, and, and allow God to discover what's going on in their life. Verse number five, and in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in, but a great turmoil, listen to these words, a great turmoil was on the inhabitants of the lands. So every nation was destroyed by nation and every city by city, and my sermon text title is for God troubled them with every adversity. God troubled them. You see, folks, God is our problem. God's our problem. Doesn't matter who gets elected in the government, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, it doesn't matter. God's our problem. God's our problem. Politics aren't going to solve the problem. Furthermore, I believe God has been offered, or I should say offended. God has been, been offended by the ways in which we marginalize him. Not just nationally, but even in our own lives. We push him aside. We, we relegate him to a corner and say, stay back there. I'll bring you out, I'll trot you out on Sunday morning, that's okay. But when I leave the church, you get back there because I'm going to do what I want to do. I'll do my thing. I'll act the way I want to act, I'll think the way I want to think, and all of these other things. Totally trying to eradicate him, we're, we're working at that one hard. Or when we speak a little religious mumbo-jumbo over the problem and say, oh, I hope God helps us. When God removed himself from any situation, he lets you then experience the consequences of choice that you leave him out. I want to also look at a passage here in, um, in Isaiah chapter 59. Go to Isaiah chapter 59 for just a moment. Here, and there's another important passage beginning in verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and verse 2. Listen to this. Behold, the, hand, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But, verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The point is, God can still hear, and he can still intervene, but because of sin and because of rebelliousness, because of spiritual laziness, God is saying, I'm not going to do anything. Let me put something into your thinking. I call this the passive judgment of God. The passive judgment of God is God saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just not going to do anything. The active judgment of God can be seen in the book of the Revelation. 
where God opens up everything and it all goes wild and crazy. This that we're experiencing today is the passive judgment of God. It's because we have ignored him, we have rebelled against him, and we have refused him at virtually every turn of many people's lives. We're currently at a point so much similar to that which is described in the book of the Judges. The key phrase in the book of Judges is very simple. It's repeated on several occasions. It says, they did that which was right in their own eyes. You see, there was a cycle in the Judges. They started up here and they started good. They were serving God. And then they began to fall away. And then they began to rebel against God. And then they started crying out to God. And then God sent a judge who would tell them, this is what you need to do to get right with God, do all of this stuff and <clears throat> get rid of the sin, all that. <clears throat> the righteous judge. And then that cycle would repeat itself. And if I remember right, in reading the book of Judges, I think it did it five or six times. A cycle. The reminder of the massive problems in, are in front of us every day. The entrepreneurial spirit that was so much a part of the history of this nation is beginning to fade. Hard work ethic is fading. Morality has fallen a victim to relativism. Again, in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 14, the Bible says, And one shall say, Heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen into the streets, and equity cannot enter, so truth fails. What are we allowing? The list is long. But we have lost our virtue, we're losing our values, and they have eroded, and the family has been redefined, and the qualities of integrity and character have been cast aside. I believe one of the cardinal truths that has been thrown into the street is this redefinition of marriage. Listen to me, when you redefine marriage, you also redefine the family. You've got to understand this. You redefine the family, and then you raise a generation of children who believe this is a legitimate option. And by the way, this is taught far and wide in our culture today. This is a legitimate option, and that what you have done then is to redefine society. One more step. God created male and female in his image. And it was not male and male. It was not female and female. And if you no longer have the expression of God's image, then you have another God, which we call an idol. And if you have another God, then you have chaos. Folks, this is not difficult theology to understand. <clears throat> Romans chapter 13 to tells us that God has ordained governments. And when a government draws close to God, God pours out his blessing. The farther away a government gets from God, and believe me, we're trying to run from God, that passive judgment 
begins to tumble in to the culture. And we see what we see today, a terrible mess. One of the aspects of a democracy is the ability to know the facts and to know the truth. Today we have an aggressive media that uses truth like Play-Doh and fashions it into any shape that fits their agenda. And when you make decisions based on lies, then you come under the control of those who feed you those lies. I go back to the late 60s when I was finishing up. I wasn't finishing, I was just starting my <clears throat> journalism degree program at Iowa State. And I remember one of the early classes, we, uh, part of the class was we uh, had to write a little simple three-paragraph story. That, I mean, that sounds just like falling off a log. And we were to take a walk up the sidewalk and then come back, write a story on that, which sounds kind of ridiculous, I realize. So I wrote on it. You expected to do this in class, write your three paragraphs, and then hand it in, and that was the end of the class. We're going to see how we did on Thursday when we came back into the class. And there was about, uh, I think there's about 20 of us in that class. And he said, I have examples of things here that I don't want anybody ever to do. And lo and behold, if he didn't hold up my paper, and on the midst of that paper is this great big huge red letter F. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, uh, I guess we're going to be changing majors here probably pretty quick. <laughs> I'll be seeing an advisor here after class. And he, he, I'm sure college professors can't do this today because they'd probably be in jail if they did. But he says, what gives you the right to subjectively put yourself in this story? And I, all I could do is open my mouth and say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm just a sophomore. I, am, I have no brains. And... and uh, but I never forgot that lesson. And we did have a chance to redo it. And I did much better. But you see the point? I was not allowed to put my, my particular opinion into that. My particular viewpoint, my particular thought. I had, my job was to state the facts and do so in a correct manner. I never forgot that. I think journalism has totally forgotten it today. The modern day media, media is in a terrible state. It is a house of cards, and I'm gonna go out on a little bit of a limb here this morning and tell you, I predict it's gonna fall. We're experiencing these things all across our culture. In the family unit, even in our churches, the idea of an absolute standard is widely debated and we settle on some kind of a relativistic, <clears throat> one-size-fits-all society, an idea. Where is the truth? The Bible says it was thrown into the street. Within the church, <clears throat> many churches have jettisoned the Bible as their standard or else watered it down so it has really lost all of its relevance. I am not afraid to speak against the church that will do that. You may not like it, but I'm going to speak against it because it's hellish. 
and there's no other term for it. We have invited the world into the church, and rather than the church going into the world. So, I'm grieved. I'm grieved by the liberalism. I'm grieved by the universalism. Everybody's going to make it. Everybody, I know everybody's messed up, but God is a loving and forgiving God, and he's just going to wink at sin, and y'all get to come in. No, he isn't. Read your Bible. I'm grieved at the worldliness. I'm grieved at the poor background that so many have in the Bible, and they cannot tell right from wrong. And I think the church sometimes has simply lost its voice. Okay, it's time to conclude. There might be some people who would say, okay, I'm ready to pound the table and say, <clears throat> something must be done. Well, whatever is going to be done is going to require a battle. And I ask you the question, are you ready for the battle? It's time for people to step forward. It's time for people to serve. I don't think it takes any talent to set and call shots. It's time to step up and serve. Some might say, well, if I speak up, I might lose a friend. It might cost me my job, maybe a special relationship that I have. Yes, there's a risk, and it's called the risk of faith. And you do have choices. You can trust man or you can trust God. If you trust God, you'll be doing so in love. And then it's up to God to provide the results. It is not up to me. It is up to God to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you would open our hearts to your word, a word that is difficult, a word that is perhaps by some may feel that is hard and tough, even harsh. But Father, I pray that we would hear the alarm clock ringing, not just by the side of the bed, but the alarm that rings across this land. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that today, that you'll plant the seed of renewal and revival in our own hearts as we take the cup, as we hold the bread in our hands. Father, help us to be recalling the incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who died and did it all for us. So Father, today I pray, I pray that you'll touch people's lives and their hearts. Father, I pray that you'll renew a commitment that each of us would remember to pray for our land, pray for our government. Pray for the leadership of our nation. Father, I pray that, that you would help people to truly humble themselves before you. Father, I believe a revival of the power of your Holy Spirit is not out of the question. We have not gone beyond the final mark. But Father, I pray let us begin today. Let us do so today and ask God to usher in a, a new era of righteousness, a new era of holiness, a new era of desiring God more than we desire anything else. So Father, I pray that you will touch our hearts this morning as we receive these elements, as we participate in communion. Father, help us, your divine help, 
is a must. We want to hear from you, and we thank you all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.